Song number 174, Brother Jonathan has asked that we mark that, and at the appropriate time, we'll sing that together. As always, we're certainly thankful for the ability that each of us have to come together this morning in a particular time when it seems as if there's a great deal of illness and sickness, many on our sick list, and even others who have colds and various other matters of disease and viruses, other things like that, and yet you and I have the capability and the blessing to gather together this morning. We trust that each will be uplifted and encouraged as we've come together, and we just want to express thanks that all who, who are here have come our way this morning. As you may have noted in the bulletin, the title of the lesson this morning actually has to deal with the following, the meaning of the word and. It may seem as if such a title as that would be a bit on the obvious side. It may seem as if such a title as that, in fact, might not be terribly needful. But yet I hope that as we give some thought to what comes from that and the understanding of it, that we will even have a richer appreciation for some of the things we find in the holy and divine Word of God. In fact, in fairness, might we begin by noting some of the following thoughts. Isn't it amazing that as we give our attention to the Word of God, and we can so readily see that each and every word is given by the inspiration of the great God of heaven. All Scripture, is it not, is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. That directly suggests, doesn't it, that inasmuch as God breathed it, that He provided it, that He gave it, that no single verse, no single sentence, no single phrase even, is such that human imagination developed it. The human ideas, in fact, set it forth, but rather that each and every word, in fact, is directly as God intended it to be. Consider with me just a few phrases, a few verses that prompt us to even appreciate that more deeply. I've listed these somewhat there near the center section of that slide. Wasn't it true in the ancient day that David... Long before the character of the printing press came along, long before the means of digital production of text and typing, it was on that occasion that David said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. Thus those words that David exclaimed, and thus ultimately were penned as inspired scripture, such as the book of Psalms, David understood that he was an inspired spokesman, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. We notice later the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 9. It was there stated, The Lord hath touched my tongue. And He said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. As Jeremiah thus said about that great course of proclaiming the Word of God, he thus was told, You have my words to speak. Jeremiah thus understood that it was not human speculation or human opinion, nor was it, in fact, suggestions or guidance. It was, in fact, that which God proclaimed and gave to him to speak. Later in that same book, in Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-nine, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. And as Jeremiah so boldly and powerfully proclaimed that word, it was his desire that all of the earth would not only hear, but would give the greatest urgency and attention to it. One chapter later exactly, in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? 
in each of those passages, we have made note that the word, word, was employed. I put my words in thy mouth. Is not my word like as a fire? O earth, hear the word of the Lord. You might note that the word, word, has to do with a single presentation, one single set of letters that form one word. And thus, in each of those verses, we are given the inclination that every single one of the words in the Word of God was intended by God to carry the message and the meaning that He wished it to carry. That means you and I mustn't overlook or neglect any of those words because they all, in fact, come from the inspiration of the God of heaven. It is with that in mind, I would invite you to think with me this morning about a particular word that may not seem as important, and it may not seem as useful as some others. But all the while, it does remind us of Paul's grand comment to the Thessalonian church, does it, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word that ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That church in Thessalonica, upon their hearing of the preaching of Paul and his companions, they accepted it as the infallible, inerrant word of God. And so this morning, might you and I do the same as we give thought to the word and, A-N-D. Some information about that word and its occurrence in the Scriptures might do us well. And so I've compiled a few features and thoughts about it. As you notice some of the features about the word and, you and I, I think, have a good idea of the meaning of that word, how it's employed, and in fact, in what way it gives meaning to a sentence. To perhaps define it, though, the word and, inasmuch as it is so common, the following statement of definition does seem entirely appropriate. The word and is simply a coordinating word that connects together elements of equal rank in terms of grammar. Consider an example or two. A little boy, upon his father asking him at the evening meal, Son, what did you do after school today? And the little boy said, I played baseball with Kevin and I rode bicycles with Tommy. He used the word and. He's made reference to two activities, and by his usage of them, Dad would easily conclude, you did both of them then, didn't you? And the young son would say, yes, Dad, I did. Beyond that, suppose someone were to ask, well, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Someone might be able to say, I had eggs and bacon, biscuits, gravy, and sausage. We notice that may be an impressive listing, but all the while, by the fact that the word and was used, all of the elements were joined together in equal rank, and every one of them apparently had a part to play in the breakfast that that person enjoyed. We notice the word and joins things together, and it puts them on an equal rank with respect to the sentence that is spoken, doesn't it? Many, many more ideas and examples, of course, could be listed. That student who so quickly replies, When I ask, what courses are you taking? And the student responds, I'm taking English and history and chemistry and algebra. We can see that by listing these four and joining them with the word and, 
that person is currently enrolled in all four of those curricula, in all four of those classes. I would submit to you that the word and occurs often in the Bible as well. Not just in our common conversation do you and I use it, but God uses it a lot as well. Look, in fact, at some of the numbers that at times may even appear staggering. Over 51,700 times the word and is used in the King James Version of the Bible. Over 51,700 times. As you and I make note of the fact there's only 31,102 verses in the Bible, that means on average we find a great number of usages. That means that on average there's five usages of the word and in every three verses. That's a great deal of number, isn't it? And it impresses upon us that God, by His Holy Spirit, has chosen to use the word and that often. Someone might be quick to reply, but could that not just be the translators? Maybe they have inserted that many usages just to try and make sense of what was originally Greek or Hebrew. But we would be mistaken if we adopted that because you might notice that the Greek word kai, K-A-I, actually occurs even more than that. That's the Greek word that means and, and it occurs 55,782 times in the Bible. Perhaps we've said enough to highlight the fact and is an important word. In fact, there are few words that occur in the Bible more often than the word and. With that being said then, let us look at some passages in which the word occurs and strive to appreciate even more powerfully and deeply the thrust behind what the message that God set forth before us. It is with that in mind that here are just a sampling of the places in which that word and appears. With dozens of thousands of places to pick from, I chose these because likely they have a degree of familiarity to them but also because the thrust behind them is so very easy to appreciate as well as to understand. In Luke, the 22nd chapter, you'll notice in particular in the opening verses of that chapter, we remember that the Lord was inching closer and closer to the time of the crucifixion. And in fact, on this occasion, the time for preparation of the Passover had now come. In verse number 8, Jesus, in speaking, said to Peter and John, Go and prepare for the Passover. Isn't it interesting that the word and appears twice in that? Peter and John. He didn't send just Peter. He didn't send just John. And he didn't send either Andrew or James. When he said Peter and John, that identified two, and both of them were to go. That's easy to understand for each of us, isn't it? And then later in the verse, Go, he said to them, and prepare for the Passover that we may eat. The word and again joined together two verbs. On the one hand was go, on the other hand was prepare. They had two tasks thus delivered to them and they were joined together on equal rank. They weren't merely to go and they weren't merely to prepare. They were to do both. It's easy to note that they understood the thrust of that because in the next verse they asked Jesus, Where wilt thou that we prepare? They asked the Lord and He thus proceeded to inform them that they were to go into a specified place that would ultimately involve an upper room in Jerusalem. And on that occasion they were to make their preparation. 
that's not the only example that would be worthy of our consideration. Look at yet another one with that thought of and as it occurred twice in that passage. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the opening verse of that chapter. Here as Paul addressed this letter to the Thessalonians, he made statements about using the word and. You might notice he said, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. We immediately have record of those who were involved in the sending of this letter. Three individuals. It was Paul, it was Silas, and it was Timothy. Not just one of the three, not just two of the three. But all three of them were sending their greetings in the matter of this letter. But the verse goes on to use the word and again. It says, "...unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ." This church had the powerful reality and the identity of being associated with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And obviously you and I today would have that same desire if we are the scriptural and faithful church of our Lord. But we notice again the word and joined together first three individuals in equal rank. And it also joined together the character of that church on equal rank as belonging to the Father and as belonging to the Son. Perhaps a third example highlighting this usage and importance of the word and. In, Matthew, in Mark 13 verse 3, again not long before the crucifixion of Jesus, there were some apostles that asked Him a question. The Lord had just stated that the temple was to be destroyed and in fact that Jerusalem was to fall upon hard times. Upon their hearing the Lord's discussion of that matter, we are told that Peter and Andrew and James and John approached Him privately on the Mount of Olives and asked Him, When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? Again, we have several usages of the word and. First, who came? It wasn't just Peter, nor was it just Peter and John. It was Peter and Andrew and James and John. The word and is used three times, and it highlights for us the fact all four were involved in this approach to the Lord and had an equal rank in the asking of these interesting questions. Later, when the questions were thus asked, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? We notice again that as they made reference to the word and, several things were thus being asked of Jesus. We could of course continue at length to discuss these usages of the word and. But to note just one or two more. In Titus 2.15, in terms of his capability and the power with which, with which he was to preach the word, Paul, writing to that young son in the faith of his Titus, said, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. You and I might notice that Paul thus joined together several verbs to speak, to exhort, to rebuke. Tim, or rather, Titus had at his disposal the power of the word of the Lord, and he was to in fact not compromise it, but was to preach it in truth and in majesty, and to do so even with the degree of rebuking those who needed to be rebuked by it. Doesn't that highlight for us today that the proclamation of truth, 
as often as it may involve that which is positive, it also ought to have a rebuking character to it if we preach it as we should. It should step on our toes, shouldn't it? For to Titus, he said, you rebuke with that word of the Lord. Can we not then see that the word and allows us to proclaim and to teach and to set forth God's word and to do so with not only a kind intonation of speaking it, but when the circumstances warrant to in fact proclaim it with a degree that involves rebuke and even chastisement and even with regard to exhortation along those matters. Just as surely as Titus was told those things by Paul, isn't it interesting to look at this scene in 1 John 2 verses 1 and following? This one now seems to be a bit of a different usage of the word and, doesn't it? In fact, as John opened that particular chapter, he wrote with respect to the following, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But then he goes on in the opening word of the next verse, and. There doesn't seem to obviously be things joined together equally until we read more closely. We notice that there is indeed a listing, a provision of these matters, and all of them are of vital importance and vital significance. It is true that Jesus Christ is our advocate. And it is true, as Anne will tell us, that He died for our sins and is a propitiation for them, just as He is for all the sins of the whole world. In all those matters, we see that Anne has occupied a rather vital role in the presentation of God's truth. It thus is to be noted why thus is it that sometimes the word and seems to be hard for people to understand? Why is it on occasion that the word and seems to cause problems? There isn't a bit of difficulty in understanding any of these, just as there isn't in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, when there we hear the description of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as being this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. Three times the word and is used and every time it joins these descriptive names of the Son of God. And there isn't anyone surely that could misunderstand that. But that does bring us to passages in which suddenly the word and seems to cause problems. So far, without any difficulty, all of these usages have been easy. But now, look at John 4.24. When we read about the nature of what worship is to be, Jesus, did He not say that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth? And here we have the definitive statement with regard to worship for all the New, the New Testament Christian era. Just as surely as thus worship must be directed to God in the attitude of spirit... And perhaps we can pause to notice that involves our eagerness, our desire. Did you and I wish to be here this morning? Has it been a desire that we have had to gather with the saints and to offer worship unto the great God of heaven who made us and who allows us to be saved from sin by His Son? If we were forcibly brought here against our wishes and will, one would have to question, were we in fact in a position to worship in spirit? Well, what about the worship in truth? In John 17, 17, the Savior there declared, Sanctify them through thy truth. 
Thy word is truth. And thus, when our worship is in accordance to the pattern and the matter set forth in the Word of God, we can then understand it is in truth. Thus, when our eagerness, that is the desire of our heart, is matched with the things that are done in truth, we have a scriptural worship. It is, of course, the desire of our elders and all of us to worship God in truth and in spirit because that's the only acceptable kind of worship. We have many examples in the Scripture of those who worshipped in spirit, but not in truth, and thus the worship was not acceptable. Jesus, in fact, affirmed that, didn't He, in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. For didn't He say that these are participating in vain worship? Why? Because they've substituted for the commandments of God and substituted the commandments of men. Many others who, in fact, were given to idolatrous worship, they, in fact, had a degree of excitement to what they were doing, but they weren't worshiping the God of heaven. Today, may we ever rest on the premise that worship must be both in truth and in spirit. And the word and identifies it because the two are now joined in equal rank. We are not to prefer one above the other. Worship in spirit, if it is without truth, is no better than worship in truth if it is without spirit. May we not thus conclude and ever be convinced to the fact both of these elements are needed and both are required by the great God of heaven. Perhaps another example, again, a passage that in no few occasions has brought about some difficulty. In Romans 1, verse, beginning in verse 16, the inspired writer Paul there said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And here at once we have the usage of the word and. To the Jew first, he said, and also to the Greek. And we have that lovely sentiment of the universal character of the gospel. Indeed, the first opportunity was given to the Jew, but wasn't it shortly thereafter through the nature of Cornelius and others? that it was opened up unto all of humanity and every person, whether they're American or Chinese, Indian or some other character of nationality, all have aspect and right to be brought and offered a matter of salvation through Jesus. Jew first and also to the Greek, that covers everybody. That universal nature may have flown in the face of what John Calvin taught, and it may have flown into the face of what Luther and others may have hailed, but it did not change what God said. And so today, as we are thankful for that opportunity of the nature of salvation offered to all people, we might ask, how is that salvation offered? What are the requirements? Perhaps we can come to the text that was read in our hearing earlier this morning. After His crucifixion, and yea, even after His resurrection... Jesus, in fact, in Mark 16, beginning in verse 15, He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Again, more than one usage of the word and. He said, Go and preach. Those apostles weren't just to go and sit around and do nothing. They were to go as well as to preach once they got there. But then he even made some statement about the response. He said, He that believeth, 
shall be saved. That's not what he said. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We have thus an interesting appreciation, don't we? A sentence, perhaps arguably, that has caused the most difficulty of almost any sentence in the gospel accounts. In fact, more than one translation of the Bible has sought to remove a set of verses that would include Mark 16, verse number 16. One of the ways to look upon that passage, he that believeth and is baptized, is to just try and see what is it that the phrase is saying. Who is the subject of the sentence and what is the verb? What is being affirmed of that subject? The word he is the sentence, is the subject. That's inclusive of every individual, not just males. Quite often the word he is used, of course, in a way encompassing of all human beings. He that believeth is baptized. We now read about the nature of who is this that's going to be saved. Jesus didn't say, He shall be saved. He qualified that word, He. Who is the He that shall be saved? It's the He that believeth and is baptized. And the word and joins together these two matters of completely equal identical rank. Belief is placed on par with baptism. To question one is to question both. To claim one is optional is to claim both are optional. To claim that one is required is to claim that both are required. They are of equal and identical grammatical rank. One of the ways that that might be asserted is to draw a picture of the sentence. And I've attempted to do that. That picture is a description in pictorial framework of that sentence. As you can start reading it from left to right, you'll note the word he is recognized as the one who is the subject of this sentence. Over to the right, you'll notice the words shall be saved. That's the action that's happening to the he. The he is being saved, but who is the he? And the Lord forevermore qualified that he in the following way. The he is not everybody. The he is the he that believeth and is baptized. We notice without much difficulty the nature and force of that word believeth. They have to have an understanding and a character of conviction in their heart as to the reality of the Christ and the nature of the message that He brings. Because that's in fact what Jesus had just proclaimed. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. So what are they to believe? They're to believe the gospel. They must have a confident assurance and conviction of the truthfulness of that gospel. But belief isn't all the Lord said. Had the Lord said or, then either belief or baptism would have been good enough. But He said, He that believeth and is baptized. So this person who believes must in fact participate in the act of baptism by being immersed for the forgiveness of sins. He that believeth and is baptized, shall be saved. And yet this usage of the word and has caused so much controversy and difficulty throughout the centuries. In fact, at least from the time of the 17th century onward, many have in fact attempted to scrub this verse under the rug to in fact wipe away the word and and claim the Lord didn't mean and despite the fact that's what He said.
Friend, who are we to question the Lord on what He meant? He was smart enough to use the word that He intended to mean. And by inspiration, it was recorded by the inspired writers for you and for me. Jesus meant and, and that's what He said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It is thus a monumental tragedy that there are so many in our world today who will straightforwardly, without even a smirk on their face, claim, I know that's what it says, but I don't believe it. Friend, are you really in a position to disbelieve what the Son of God said? To call into question what the inspired writers penned? As if this particular passage wasn't enough, we have another one. It was back on that previous slide. In Acts 2 verse 38, on that first Pentecost following the resurrection of our Savior, it was on that occasion that Peter and the eleven that were with him proclaimed in power and in majesty that first gospel lesson. And then as he approached the end of it, in a thunderous invitation tone, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And with that, verse 37 reads like this. It says, Then they that were pricked in their heart, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They understood that figuratively the blood of Jesus was dripping from their fingers. They had a part to play in putting to death the Son of God. They had had a role in putting to death the greatest being who had ever walked this planet. What shall we do? It was Peter who, upon hearing that question, responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That sin of which they were guilty, their refusal to accept the, the Jesus, their part in putting Him to death, it was on that occasion that He said, To rid yourself of that sin, to have it remitted, two things, Repent and be baptized. Again, the word and is used. Peter did not say or. First, there was a necessity of repentance. It's clear based on the fact they were pricked in their heart that they already believed. They already had a conviction that the Lord was who He said He was. Now, in following that, He said, you must repent. You, in fact, need to appreciate the fact that that error and sin that you committed turn aside from it and have a mindset of accepting that which is the truth. But then he said, be baptized. One more time, the word and has joined together these things of equal rank in that sentence. And today, doesn't it remind us about the vitality and the usefulness of that word and? In so many places, in so many ways, not the least of which are these we've just considered, but isn't it now true in summary that you and I can make some conclusions? Inasmuch as we've looked at this plan of salvation as expressed in Acts 2.38 and as expressed in Mark 16.16, 16, we are still in a position today of living beneath the authority of those verses. And of course, in its faithfulness, the church of Christ has heralded the truth of those two verses just as surely as it will continue to do until the end of time. We are not at liberty of tampering with God's plan of salvation. We preach in verity 
and in great truth the fact that a person must hear the word of the Lord, must believe that because that's what the Lord said. In addition, must repent of his or her sins, must in fact confess the name of Jesus, and must be baptized. And as you and I open the Scriptures and look at the passages wherein those things are set forth, we can with great comfort understand that the word and tells us all of them are required. We are not at liberty to pick and choose out of that list the ones we like best or the ones that are the least inconvenient to us or the ones that will cause us the least amount of public spectacle. We appreciate that all of them are required because God said and. And and means they're all joined together in an equal setting of rank. The comfort that is brought to our hearts as we think about the simplicity of all of them being a part of the plan of salvation should be a comforting tone that will allow us a framework of a life knowing that we've done what God said to do. Today, have you attended to those matters in your life? Because God did mean and. That's what He said. And all those other verses that we considered today about our worship, God again meant and. Have you attended to the ands in your life? It is a word again that occurs so often in the Bible. May we not overlook it. But may we understand whatever it's joining together, all of them have the equal significance and equal rank. And so have you attended again to the ands, A-N-D-S, in your life? Whether it's with regard to worship, whether it's regard to the plan of salvation, whether it's regard to the other aspects and matters that we're to remove from our life, various and sundry sins. In 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're told five things that we're to remove from our life, and they're joined together with the word and. We put aside malice and evil speaking and all guile, just to name three of them. In 2 Peter 1, we have a whole listing of things joined by and that we're to add to our life. Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. And and occurs between every one of them. Are we adding them? Are we attending to the ands? If today you need to make a public change to give attention to the ands, why not let today be the day to do that? The gospel plan of salvation, as we've discussed it this morning, is the truth set forth in God's Word. If you've never been baptized, why not today? If you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, and you know that you're guilty of sin and that He paid the price for you, then it would seem you know enough to be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have attended to that at some former day and have known the good glory that that brought to you by virtue of being a child of God, but you have wandered away from your first love, you've stopped attending to the good ends and given too much attention to the evil ones, why not come back today to your first love? We'd pray with you and for you, and we'd be happy to do any of that that we might need to do so for you. We would only ask you let us know in what way we could be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing.